Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. And to just kind of recap uh, where we were, this is really part two of where we were a couple weeks ago. We began looking at the letter to the church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Also, the verses will be on the screen. And what we discovered in this letter is that Jesus has proclaimed, and not just here, but all throughout the New Testament, that for everyone who calls on the name of Christ, everyone who becomes a Christian, who identifies with Jesus Christ, Jesus has promised persecution, struggle, and suffering. And I, as I commented last week, that's not really an awesome, like, ad campaign to build your ministry. Right? Come to Jesus. Your life's going to be really hard, right? But this is what he promised. Why? Because the world hates Jesus. And if you align yourself with Christ, the world is going to hate you. And with that will come different levels of struggle and suffering and the like. That's why Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you need to take up your cross and follow me. So there there is an understanding that to follow Christ is to die to this life, to renounce all that you have, pick up your cross, and follow him into the kingdom of God. So today we're going to kind of finish this message out as we set the understanding that persecution is coming Struggle is coming, right? This flies in the face of all the name it and claim it ministries. You know, if you, know, you want a Ferrari, just believe God for a Ferrari and you'll get your Ferrari, right? That's not Bible. That's not what Jesus said. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If you're delighting in the Lord, what's the desire of your heart going to be? It's going to be the Lord. And what is the Lord? He is our portion. He is our reward. He is our greatest treasure, our greatest prize. He's our blessed hope. Amen. So we delight ourselves in God, and we get to experience all that he has. Such an awesome thing. But in this life, we will have trial. We will have tribulation. As we continue to read what he has here, we're going to enter into what I would consider some dangerous territory because we're going to discuss a subject and highlight a subject that really has been polarized in Christianity uh, between different camps and different groups. And depending on where you grew up or how you grew up, you may land on a different side than what I present today, or you might hear something today maybe that you haven't heard before. Uh, I don't know if your experience has been like mine as you're studying the Scripture and reading the Bible, but often the type of churches you go to, they don't necessarily teach you how to study the Bible They teach you how to study the Bible the way they study the Bible. To read the Bible the way they read the Bible. I grew up uh, in a certain uh, tradition and denomination, and I, uh, for the life of me, believed we were right, right? They would always say that, you know, we believe the sound doctrine, the pure, pure scripture. Everything we believed was right, which made everyone else wrong that disagreed. And I got out of high school, I got kind of into my college years, and and started encountering people that differed in their understanding or belief of Scripture and were telling me things I had never heard of before that really challenged me to go deeper into my understanding. And since then, some of the things I used to believe that I thought were concrete aren't so concrete and began to believe a different way. And so the challenge today 
is to keep an open heart. If you disagree with anything that I'm saying, pray about it. See if there's any biblical foundation for it. And if it doesn't click with you, take me out for coffee. We'll discuss it further. We don't need to fight over it, right? But I believe that we're going to see, and we're going to be encouraged today, not just challenged, but also encouraged, as we see a promise of God for those who endure in their faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you for friends overseas. I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for the example that Sadish sets. He doesn't need a building. He doesn't need a marketing strategy. He doesn't need a Facebook page. He just picks up his Bible, and he walks to different villages, sits under a tree, and preaches Jesus, and people are getting saved. And so, God, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would move powerfully upon him. You provide every need that they have. And we thank you, God, for this encounter together and the way that you're enabling us to begin supporting the work that, that they have there at that children's ministry. We pray for every orphan there, God, that they would know they are deeply loved by God. They're not an accident. They're not uh, forgotten, but they are known by you. Today, God, as we get into your word, I pray, Lord, that you would speak, that the truth would be declared, it would be clear. You would challenge us in our faith, but also you would encourage us to know that, that, God, you're coming back one day. And that makes all the difference in the world. And so, God, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart that understands, and a mind ready to believe everything you've proclaimed in your word. And all God's people said, amen and amen. So let's begin reading in Revelation chapter 2, in verse 8. And here's what Jesus writes to the church at Smyrna. Says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Somebody say tested. I know what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Notice Jesus ends this letter. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. This letter was not just for this group of people. It's for all believers in Christ. It's for every one of us. What is interesting here is that he says, not only are you going to have tribulation, but the devil himself. And he calls him by two different names. He calls him the devil and he calls him Satan, which... Well, the devil means the slanderer. Satan means the adversary. We have this kind of dual nature of how he's going to come against. He's going to oppose them in every way. He's going to slander their good name, and he's going to do so to throw some of them into prison and to persecute them even unto death. The devil himself is going to come against the believers. He says, and you're going to enter a time of testing for 10 days. Now, the number 10 uh, numbers in Scripture are important. They have often prophetic significance or poetic significance. There's a symbology behind 
the numbers. The number 10 is often used for times of testing. And that's what Jesus just said. Satan is going to try you to test you. The number 10 is used for testing. We can see this in Scripture, how in the Old Testament, the different Jewish feasts, they had seven uh, main feasts between the Feast of uh, Trumpets and the Feast of Atonement. There are 10 days in between that are called the 10 days of awe. And in the 10 days of awe, the Jewish people were to repent of their sin to get their heart right before God. Because if they didn't, after the Day of Atonement, they'd be cursed and would die the next year, is what they believed. So the 10 days of awe were a time of testing for the people. We have the 10 plagues in Egypt, when the plagues were sent to test the Egyptians and bring judgment on their gods. We have tithing in the New Testament. Tithing is a test. God has called on believers to trust him with the first tenth, the tithe means tenth, the first tenth of our finances. And so whether you tithe or not, that is a test of God to see if you trust God with everything that he's given you. So when Jesus says here that he is going to, that the believers are going to be tested, he's not saying that it's ten literal days. Like you're only going to have to endure this for ten days. No, what he's saying is there is a season of testing about to come upon you. There's a period of time where you're going to be tested by the devil himself. And you're going to be tested for a reason. You're going to be tested to see what you're made of. To see the reality of your faith. My kids and I, we like to watch a show on the History Channel called Forged in Fire. Any Forged in Fire fans? Isn't that so cool? They take like a hunk of junk, like tin cans and all this stuff. They melt it down and turn like a, into like a ninja sword or something. It's so cool what they do. But even if they're able to do that, they're able to mesh all that metal together and put it through the fire and build something extravagant, they don't win the show that way. Their instrument has to be tested. It has to be tested for strength, for durability, for sharpness. And the one that outdoes the other is usually the one that wins the show. It's kind of fun. We kind of got addicted to it uh, a little bit. And uh, for this year, my boys were like, for their birthday, they wanted to go to the Bavarian blacksmith experience. And so we took them there, and they got to forge their own knives. Um, Asher made one out of a horseshoe, and Reese made one out of a, a rail spike. It was pretty cool that we got to do that. But the deal is, is that they have to be tested. And so until it's tested, you don't know whether or not it's going to pass the test. So Jesus is saying the devil's going to come against you, and it's going to be for a purpose. It's going to be to see what you are made of. And then he says, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death, and then I will give you the crown of life. So the question is, is what is the crown of life? So it's like he throws this information out like we should just know what it is, right? Well, what, what's the crown of life? Sounds pretty cool. I mean, has it got like jewels on it? Like what, what, what is this? Well, I'll tell you, in, in James chapter 1, verse 12, James says it's the crown we receive after standing the test of our faith. So it's a crown we receive after our faith is tested. Paul the Apostle in 2 Timothy 4.8, he calls it the crown of righteousness that we are rewarded with on the day we stand before Jesus to be judged. In 1 Peter 5.4, Peter tells us it is the crown of glory we receive at Christ's return. So this crown Jesus is speaking of 
It's awarded to the one who conquers, who overcomes, the one who is faithful unto death. And then he says, to the one who conquers, you won't be hurt by the second death. So you're going to be tested, be faithful unto death, and you'll get the crown of life. And with this crown of life, what does that do? It keeps the second death from harming you. That's what he's telling them. Now, it's only logical that if there's a second death, there must be a what? A first. And it's pretty self-explanatory. The first death is physical death. He just told them about that. He said, you're going to be tested, you're going to be thrown into prison, and some of you are going to be killed. You're going to be persecuted for my name's sake. He already proclaimed that you will be killed. The first death is physical death. The day our bodies die. He says, those who have the crown won't be hurt by the second death. Well, if the first death is physical death, then what's the second death? It's spiritual death. Eternal separation from God for all eternity. Every one of us is going to die one day. The old must die. The young may die. We're not guaranteed any length of time on the earth. But the Bible says there's appointed one day for all people to die. One day, everyone will die. Why? Because sin exists, and sin unleashes the curse of death. So every human being that's ever lived, every human being that's ever been born, eventually will die. And after death comes the judgment. So what is Jesus doing here? He is proclaiming that there is a second death coming, a spiritual death coming, and that death was not designed for humans. It was designed for one particular group. It was designed for the devil and the angels that followed him. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that it was the lake of burning sulfur, the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels before time. So those who are faithful unto death, they receive the crown of life. They're able to escape the second death. Jesus is making a salvation statement. If you're faithful unto death, you will have eternal life. And this, beloved, is what the true test of faith is. You're going to be tested by the devil. Pass the test, and you'll have eternal life. Pass the test, and you will have eternal life. You will be saved. And so this is the question that has to come in in this moment. He's talking to a church, which means he's talking to believers. Amen? He's tracking with me? He's telling them to be faithful unto death, and you'll get the crown of life. What about those who are not faithful unto death? Why would you tell a whole group of believers to be faithful unto death if it's assumed that everyone's going to be? See, logically, we have to conclude that if he has to tell some or the whole church to be faithful, there are going to be some who are not. And if the crown of life is what exempts you from being harmed by the second death, that means those who are not faithful will fall into judgment. Now, in this letter to the church, Jesus doesn't really quote from the Old Testament here, but he does refer back to Matthew 24, the sermon that he presents many of the signs of the end of the world, the time that points to his coming. 
And in Matthew 24, 9, he refers to believers being persecuted, even being put to death. And then he makes a similar promise in verse 13. In Matthew 24, 13, he says, but the one who what? Who endures to the end will be what? Saved. There will be persecution, there will be trial, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What is this telling us? It's telling us that the test is coming to see the proof in the pudding. If you are or if you ain't. And again, we have the stipulation, the faithful one will be saved. This warning in Matthew 24, again, comes after a revealing that in the last days, there will be a great falling away from the faith. Uh, people will betray and hate one another. They'll, they'll turn their backs on one another. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle refer, refers also to events in the last days. He writes this book, 2 Thessalonians, because somebody had written a forgery letter declaring that the end had already come. And it freaked out all the believers. And you can imagine what was going on. Did, you know, did anybody see the Left Behind story, the Left Behind movies? Or read the Left Behind books about the rapture? Like the rapture comes and everyone's gone and there's just a few who are left behind? Right? There, there's been uh, stories and I think maybe even some videos online where people would play rapture pranks. Where, where they would set somebody up to go someplace unbeknownst to them. Like a loud sound was going to happen, and then they'd walk into a room and all the clothes were folded and nobody's around when there's supposed to be a bunch of people to make them think the rapture happened. I think that's sadistic, but awesome. I don't know. I just kind of find that funny. But in Paul's day, they were doing essentially the same thing. They were writing letters, pretending to be the apostles, and they were messing with people. They were telling them that the Christ has already come, it's already been fulfilled, you missed it, you're not in the kingdom. So Paul had to write this letter to kind of correct the theology to say, hey, this stuff hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3, here's what he says. He says, don't be fooled by what they say, for that day will not come until there is what? A great rebellion against God. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. The end of the world, the end of days, the return of Christ, the kingdom of God, it's not going to come until we see who the Antichrist is, he's revealed, until there's a great falling away or a great rebellion against God. That word rebellion is the Greek word apostasia, which is where we get our word apostasy. It means a turning away from what you once believed into believing a new way, turning away from what you once believed. So in the last days before Jesus returns, there's going to be a great number of professing believers who turn away from their faith. Ones who were once loyal to God will no longer be loyal to God and will side with the opposition. So there is a warning that Jesus is giving his church about being faithful, enduring to the end. And it's really an issue of loyalty. Who are you going to be loyal to? Those who maintain believing loyalty in Christ Jesus, who hold fast to their testimony, right? They overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Those who maintain, hold fast, until the day of their death or he returns first, it is those who will be saved. Again, Jesus speaking of future things and the tribulation ahead of the persecution, the suffering, the trial, the test coming on the church, you know, 
some people, you know, think they're going to escape all of this stuff. But the Bible tells us a different story. He tells us that there is struggle, persecution, trouble coming on the earth. He's telling his disciples again, there's something coming. It's going to be harsh. Matter of fact, in, in the Gospels, Jesus said, if the days were not shortened, nobody's going to survive. But because of my people, because of the elect, my namesake, those days are shortened. That there's something coming on the earth that is going to be incredibly difficult to endure. And in John chapter 16, verse 1, here's what he says to his disciples. He says, I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. I've told you about what's coming. And beloved, Jesus is telling you this today. He's telling you what's coming so that when it comes, you don't abandon your faith. That you endure. That you carry on. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, he's writing to believers about how Jesus overcame his test. You know, Jesus was tested. He says that he was tempted and tried in every way we were, but yet was without sin. And he who was equal with God didn't think it was robbery with God to be just like God. And so he lowered himself, made himself in the image of a servant, came to this earth, lowered himself even to the point of death, the death of a cross. And because of that, Philippians 2 says, Jesus has, God has given Jesus a name which is above every name. He's glorified him. So Jesus has also been tested. And the writer of Hebrews tells us how Jesus was able to endure that test. It says that he looked ahead at the joy that was awaiting him. Not the suffering he was enduring. He looked ahead at the joy that was coming. He looked at being reunited with the Father. About all those who would put their faith and trust in him. Matter of fact, in John 17, he even prays for those who are far off that haven't seen or even heard his name yet. He prayed for us in the garden. He looked ahead at the joy awaiting him, which enabled him to disregard the shame he was going to endure and the pain of the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, here's how the writer of Hebrews encourages the church. He says, think of all the hostility Jesus endured from sinful people. Right? No slave is better than its master. If they hated him, they're going to hate us. He says, think of all the hostility he endured, then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you've not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. Until the day we die, or the day we see Jesus face to face, we're in a constant battle and struggle against sin, against temptation, against the pull to fall away. This is the work of the enemy. He wants to pull us away from what God has called us to do and who God's called us to be. To pull us away from trusting in the finished work of Christ to put our faith in other things, like our own self-righteousness or our own works. And then the day Jesus returns, there's really going to be two classes of believers. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He talks about those who are in Christ. The first are going to be the dead in Christ who will rise first to meet Jesus. And then those who are alive and remain, those who were able to survive what comes upon the earth, the second group are the alive in Christ or the living in Christ. And they will meet Christ in the air as well. He distinguishes between these two groups because both of them are in Christ. To be faithful unto the end 
as Jesus is writing here in Revelation 2. It means to hold fast to your faith and remain faithful to Christ as your Savior until you meet Jesus face to face in whatever way you meet him. Either by dying before he returns or meeting him in the clouds when he comes. That you hold fast, you maintain your faith. As Jesus is speaking of these events at the end of days in Luke 21, he says this in verse 28. He says, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your head, because you're what? Your redemption is drawing near. When you begin to see the events that he's foretold begin to take place on the earth, this is not the time to run and hide and cower. No, he says, straighten up. Look up. Because something awesome is about to happen. Your redemption is coming. Your redemption is coming. That word redemption can also be translated as salvation. Your salvation is near. So what Jesus is telling us here in Luke 21, he's telling us that these things are coming upon the earth as a sign that salvation is coming. What does that mean? That means salvation is not yet here. If something is drawing near, that means it hasn't yet come. So though we know and we place our faith and trust in Christ, we use this all the time in church language, in, in church culture. It's why we have to really know what we're talking about. When we say, if you place your faith and trust in Christ, then you'll be saved. We use that phraseology a lot. We have to remember that there's not just a present salvation, there's also a future salvation. So though salvation is here for those who place their faith and trust in Christ, it's already also not yet. There is a salvation that is also coming. So if you know the Lord today, you are saved, but you're also not yet saved. There's an already and not yet aspect to our salvation. Now when you accept Christ as your Savior, you place your faith and trust in Him, the Spirit of God comes to live within you. Paul talks about the sealing work of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God comes to live within you. We read this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed. Somebody say sealed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So this is like a king putting his seal on a document. Remember in the medieval days, they would get the, the liquid wax, they would melt it down, and then they would take the ring and they would seal it. They put the seal of the king. And the only one that could open that was who was approved to open it. So it was reserved. It was an official document. When you place your faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes as God's seal upon you. But he seals you for something specific. And we read this in Ephesians 4.30. Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Somebody say sealed. But what were you sealed for? What? The day of redemption. Not that you were sealed for the here and now. You were sealed for the day of redemption, the day of salvation that is coming. So what we are actually preparing for is what is coming when Jesus comes, the day of redemption, that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes down from heaven to set up the kingdom. When you believed in Christ, you were set apart as holy for the day of salvation. Are you tracking with me? So we are saved now, 
but we're saved for the day of salvation. We're set apart for that day. In Ephesians 2, Paul says it's by grace we're saved through faith when we believed. When you placed your faith and trust in Christ, that's when his grace came upon you to seal you, to set you apart for the day of redemption. That's the day your sins were covered by the blood of the Lamb. And you become part of the church of Jesus Christ. You were sealed for the day of salvation. But beloved, you are not yet experiencing the fullness of that salvation. You're set apart for salvation, but you're not yet experiencing that salvation. Paul in Romans 8, 23, this is what Paul tells us about our present state as we are right now. He says, we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a what? As a foretaste of future glory. We have the Holy Spirit within us as the appetizer to the main course. Anybody hungry yet? Anybody like Applebee's half-price apps that just came back? Praise God. I really got to eat before church. I'm sorry. But what's Paul saying? He said, we have the Holy Spirit. We've been sealed when we trusted in Christ. But what we have now is not what has been promised. It's a glimpse. It's a foretaste. It's the appetizer to the main meal. He says, we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he's promised. So our spiritual self, our spiritual life has been redeemed, but our physical life has not been redeemed, which is why we still get old and crusty and die. But the promise is that we will live forever, right? It's eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We, we proclaim this verse as we make the decision to trust in Christ. But that salvation has not come. It comes when we are both physically and spiritually saved. When we are fully redeemed. When we are fully delivered from sin and suffering. So though we are saved in the present moment, we're saved as we are set aside for the day of redemption. We've been set aside for adoption. Yet we haven't fully realized the fullness of that adoption. You know, my brother, two years older than me, and he was, he was adopted, so I didn't know any other brother but him, but what I love about adoption is that parents who aren't able to have children can still become parents as they welcome a new child into their home. But the thing about adoption is that unless you have someone supporting you, adoption is really expensive. Matter of fact, in Michigan, the average adoption is between $25,000 and $50,000. Now, I don't know why it costs so much, because you would think this child doesn't have a home. There's no way for them. You're basically giving them a permanent place to live. This person's taking on the responsibility of all the, all the costs, doctor's visits, and all these things. And you want to charge them like a year's salary in order to adopt a child. But it's what the case is. So even if you raise all the money, you come up with the twenty-five dollars to $50,000, you sign the adoption certificate, 
You know, both says, yes, I want to adopt, and if the child's old enough, they can sign, yes, I want them to be my parents. Your adoption is still not enforced until you stand before the judge and he marks down his decree. So if you think about the adoption, are we adopted into the family of God? Yes, but not yet. There is an already but not yet aspect to our salvation. The price has been paid. Jesus shed his blood and took care of the payment for our adoption. Praise God. The Holy Spirit's come down as the seal setting aside for the day of redemption. But until we see Jesus face to face, either in this life or in the next life, the adoption has not yet been satisfied or secured. And we're told over and again about parables and stories where Jesus warns of those who would fall away. Jesus tells a parable about ten bridesmaids in Matthew 25. You're not going to read it, but essentially the story is this. There are ten bridesmaids. They're all engaged to the groom. And the groom goes off to prepare the place, and so their one responsibility is to keep their lamps filled with oil so when the master comes, they can go, they can get married, and spend happily ever after. And so the five of them were wise. They had everything that they needed. They were ready. They were white waiting. They, were, they could go at any moment. But five were foolish, and they didn't keep their lamps filled with oil. And when they were feeling like the hour was late and that the time was close that the, the master was going to come, they asked the five wise, hey, can you give us some of your wine or your oil so that we would have what we need for when he comes? And they're like, we don't have enough for the, for the both of us. You need to go to the market, get you some stuff, and then come back and you can be ready. And so they left. While they were gone, the master came. And the five wise went into the wedding chamber with the master and he locked the door. And by the time the foolish came and were knocking on the door, the master looked at them and said, I have no idea who you are. You weren't ready. You didn't have what you need. You weren't found faithful. So I don't know who you are. And he declared for them to be cast away. There's another parable of fishermen catching all kinds of fish. The net is thrown out, and all kinds of fish are caught in the net. They're all in the net. But in the last day, the fisherman separates the good fish from the bad fish and only keeps the good fish. Jesus said, he is the vine and we are the branches. If we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. But the vines that don't bear fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire. So what's the difference between all of these groups? What's the difference between the wise and the foolish, the the good and the bad fish, the fruitful vines and the unfruitful vines? The difference between the two are the ones who know the Lord, the ones who are faithful to the Lord, and the ones who don't know the Lord and who are unfaithful to the Lord. And the ones who are unfaithful are the ones who are cast away into the judgment. They're the ones that fall away. Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, it's impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Somebody say fallen away. To restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. What is he saying? He's saying, if those who have once professed Christ, 
They heard the gospel. They aligned themselves with the church. They got tastes of the goodness of God. And they knew what was coming. If they fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Once you fall away, there's no coming back. There's no restoration. And the question is, is why is that? It's because they have rejected the only means of salvation. Jesus died once for all sin for all time. That is the only method of salvation, placing your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you reject the work of Christ, you reject salvation. It's similar to the devil himself who had a place in heaven, saw all of God's goodness and said, nah, I think I'm better. I'm going to go my own way. And God has reserved a day of judgment for the devil. So those who reject Christ, reject faith in him, fall away. What are they doing? They're really aligning themselves with the enemy. And thus, they receive the enemy's fate. They'll join the devil in the judgment. Jesus said there's one unforgivable sin. That's the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to reveal Jesus. It's what he does. He reveals the goodness of God. He confirms the gospel through signs, wonders, and miracles. He testifies of the Lord. He speaks. He teaches to point us to Christ. When you reject the work of the Spirit, that is to reject your faith in Jesus and put your faith in something else. And a divided loyalty is no loyalty at all. The gospel and salvation is hindered on Jesus or nothing. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but by me. So if you want to go to God's heaven, you have to go God's way, and that's through Jesus Christ. So in the intermediate time between now and the time that he comes, we are in this waiting period as we are being tested to see where our loyalty lies. Salvation comes at fullness at the return of Christ, and your experience of that salvation hinges on whether your believing loyalty in Christ as Lord remains, trusting in his death and resurrection. And beloved, as we continue in our study in the book of Revelation, we'll get into some really interesting things like the mark of the beast. We've been told about the mark of the beast for a long time. There's a lot of speculation on what it is. But the reality of the mark is this. It's a decision of loyalty. Who are you going to trust in? Who are you going to align yourself with? The number of the beast refers to the number of his name. It's a question of identity. Who are you going to identify with? At the time of the end, when this comes, the world will be in such a state that the only way to survive will be to take the mark. You won't be able to buy or sell or have any common discourse. You won't be able to provide for yourself. You won't be able to make any money. And you'll be on a hit list for persecution. So when this time comes, the only way to be redeemed is to reject the mark of the beast. To keep your loyalty in Christ. To literally give up your life for his sake. Remember what Jesus said? He said, those who hold on to their life will lose it. Those who give up their life for my sake will what? They'll find it. There's something coming, and as we progress in, we'll see there is a constant pull, a constant test to see where your loyalty lies. And those who fall away from Christ are doing it not by accident. 
but they're doing it by choice. I know there's a lot of talk about whether or not the COVID-19 shot was the mark of the beast. I don't know if you guys caught wind of that. I follow some kind of crazy news streams, but it's the mark of the beast. No, it's not the mark of the beast. But you can see how the mark's going to be used by not letting people go into stores and buy and sell things and, and get on planes if you don't have this requirement. Those who take the mark, those who fall away from Christ, they're not going to do it by accident. They're going to do it by choice. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself what? An enemy of God. If you want to be a friend of the world, if you want the world to like you, to accept you, if you want the world to think well of you, you're making yourself an enemy of God. Why? Because the world hates Jesus Christ. The world hates Christ. And if the world hates Jesus, he's going to hate you. So if you're living your Christian life and the world doesn't dislike at least some things that you do, you're not doing it right. If you're not getting persecuted at work because you're a good Christian and you're not going partying with everybody else, or you're trying to encourage people to come to church while they're encouraging you to get hammered at the bar. If they're not thinking you're weird because you're saving yourself for marriage and you're not going to be sleeping around with other people because you know that's God's design for marriage and they're doing a hookup, shack up, break up. You're not doing it right. Your loyalty is divided. And I know there are many of us, I know several people in my own life who at one time, were seemingly on fire for God. They were serving God. They were always in church. They were always serving. They were involved, but now seem to have fallen away. And maybe some of you are even thinking, what happened? What Did they lose their salvation because they were once seemingly on fire for God, but now they're not on fire anymore? What about them? They prayed a prayer. I remember when they prayed the prayer to receive Christ, but now it seems like they don't, they don't believe, they don't they don't follow Christ at all. The first thing I would encourage you is this. There are no salvation prayers in the Bible. You don't pray a prayer and get a quick trip to heaven. There are many people that pray prayers because they want fire insurance. They want to get out of hell free card. There are no salvation prayers in the Bible. What there is are scriptures that say if you declare Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's loyalty. It's commitment. There are many people who have been saved, been baptized, that seem to have no faith at all now. Did they lose their salvation? Beloved, I think a better question to ask is, did they ever really have it? Did they ever really have it? The only way you can fall away from the faith is if you turn your back on God and you die without Christ. While we're in this life, we have opportunity to follow him or not. And you have until the last breath in your life to make a decision for Christ. And what I love about the scripture, as we are looking at those who have fallen away, those who have left the faith under the influence of the world, John the Apostle, as he's talking about the spirit of Antichrist that's in the world that's pulling people away, that's trying to pull people out of the church, that's trying to pull them out away from their faith, that caused them not to believe. There is a spiritual force, the Bible calls the spirit of Antichrist, that's trying to pull people away from God. 
In 1 John 2.19, here's what he said about those that were falling away, that were leaving the faith. He said, these people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved they didn't ever belong to us. Those that fall away, those that seem to be on fire for God one minute and then are gone the next and we never see them again, those that fall away, it's not that they lost their salvation. It's that they were never really one of us to begin with. They had a spiritual experience. They, they, they were trying to fulfill the, the expectations of a family member, whatever the case is. They were brought up in a Christian home. That's just what they were doing as they grew up. And as they left the home, they began to turn away. The question is not did they lose it. The question is did they ever really have it. And I believe the word of God tells us, no, they didn't. Because when you taste and see that the Lord is good, how can you ever reject the goodness of God? How can you ever turn your back on the goodness of God? Paul in Philippians tells us he not only gives us the power, but also the desire to do what God wants us to do. When the Spirit has come upon you, when you've been sealed, when your heart is truly connected to Christ, no matter what happens in this life, you're not going to turn your back on God. And God will never turn his back on you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. You won't fall away. You won't trust in anything else because it's the truth that sets you free. And when you know the truth, you'll walk in that freedom. Who the Son of God has set free is free indeed. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Right after the writer of Hebrews talks about those who have fallen away, he immediately turns and he says, But beloved, I believe better things of you, that you're not among that group that falls away. There's a security, there's an assurance in those who have a genuine relationship with Christ. Your salvation can't be taken from you. You can't just lose it one day because you made a mistake. If the Spirit of God is in you, you are sealed, you are secured, and you're set aside for the glorious day. But it's the religious people who are caught up in a system that's convinced them they are something that they're not. And when they are tested... The proof will be in the pudding. It will be revealed. Because in the last day, they won't hold fast to their faith. They won't overcome. They won't conquer. They'll turn. They'll betray their brothers and sisters in Christ. They'll walk away. And when the day comes that the mark is offered, they're going to receive the mark. Because the quality of their life is more important than their testimony of Christ. The brother of Jesus in Jude, verse 24. Here's what he writes at the end of his letter to encourage the church. To remove all fear of this possibility of losing your salvation. He says in verse 24, he says, Now all glory to God who is able to what? To keep you from falling away. And will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. There will be those that fall away, but they're not genuine believers. They're those that were hanging around on the periphery, hanging out in the back, checking it out, but never fully committed. If you know Christ and you're a new creation, the Spirit of God lives in you. He's holding you secure. Nothing's plucking you out of his hand. And he has promised and ordained to keep you secure until the day you see him face to face. 
So we're warned to hold fast to endure, not to cause fear in the faithful about losing their salvation. We're called to hold fast to endure, to warn those who are just playing games, who are trying to maintain an image, who are trying to keep everyone around them happy and pleased when genuine faith hasn't entered into their lives. Those who are of true faith, those who are born again, Beloved, we're encouraged because not only will he keep us from falling, not only has he held us secure, he has set us aside for the day of redemption, but there is coming a crown of glory and righteousness that will surpass all our understanding. That when we're donned with that crown, we'll have a glorious gift that we can lay at his feet because there's only one worthy to wear the crown. There's only one worthy to be exalted in heaven. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus leaves us this letter in Smyrna as a warning, but also as an encouragement. And so for the next few moments, I'd like us to take a moment, a sincere moment, to ask yourself one question. If being a Christian were suddenly illegal today, as it is in many parts of the world, and my friend Sadish knows of churches that have been burnt down. He shared a testimony of a, another guy named Eric in Kenya. Brother and sister-in-law were murdered by Muslims, persecuted. There are places in our world where Christianity is illegal. If it suddenly became illegal in our nation today, and there are people looking at your life, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Can people tell by the way you live, the things you say, that you're a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? If you were faced with losing your life or recanting your faith in Christ, what would you choose? This is a sobering question. There have been those that have had to make that decision. I think of years ago at the Columbine High School shooting, killed because of their faith in Christ. Asked before the moments of their death, are you a believer in Christ or not? And the answer to that question determined whether that person pulled the trigger or not. This is coming on the world. It's coming for us. If you were to make that decision today, what would you choose? Would you recant your faith or would you hold fast and endure? If you had to make the choice between your recanting your faith or losing someone you love or watch them get hurt, what would you choose? Let's bow for prayer as we go into a time of response. These questions are important to ask because Jesus made it important. He said, beloved, that there is a day coming, there's a time of testing coming on the world. The devil is going to test you. Some will be thrown in prison. Some will be persecuted. Some are going to starve. Some are going to go through some very difficult things. And if we struggle with just simple obedience today, if we struggle with sharing our faith today, imagine how hard is it going to be 
when that time comes. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, where does our loyalty lie? What are we truly holding on to in this life? And God, what do I need to do to surrender all that I have, to renounce all that I have, so that for me to live is Christ, because I know to die, it'll be even better. There is a reward coming. If Jesus looked ahead at the joy awaiting him and that enabled him to endure the cross, God, help me get my eyes off this world and help me get my eyes onto heaven so that no matter where you lead me or what I have to go through, I can endure it faithfully as a child of God and a bold witness for Jesus Christ. Beloved, if we hold on to our lives, we're going to lose them. But if we give up our lives for his sake, we're going to find it. As we go into a time of prayer, is there any area of your life you're unwilling to lay down for the Lord? If so, spend some time right now talking to him about it. Ask him to give you boldness as his servant to be a witness for Jesus. Because the days are short, the hour is coming when these things will be fulfilled. And as we see him coming on the earth, we don't look down in despair. We look up with expectation of God's glory being revealed. So where is your heart today? Where does your loyalty lie? If you need to surrender your life to Christ, maybe you need to give your life to Christ for the first time. You know that, that there's something coming and you don't have a relationship with God. If you were to die today and you were to stand before him, you don't know that you'd be welcomed into heaven. If that's you here today, you can make the first decision that it will change the rest of your life by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, putting your faith in his death to cover your sin, putting your trust in his resurrection so that you can have the power to live a new life and begin making him Lord and Savior today. And right now, we can enable you to begin making that decision simply by calling out to him in prayer. No, the prayer will not save you. No, just praying this prayer doesn't guarantee your salvation. Paul says if you confess Jesus as your Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And it's an act of the heart. Get your heart involved. Right now where you are, if you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is the first time you've ever accepted him or maybe you need to come back to him and rededicate your life, I encourage you to pray with me right where you are. You can repeat this after me. Say, Father in heaven, I thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins, to pay my debt. There is no way I could have ever pay you back. But today, Lord, I'm giving you the one thing you've always wanted, and that's my heart. Today, I declare with all the faith I can muster that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And from this day forth, I dedicate my life to live for him. Father, seal me with your spirit and fill me up. Empower me to be a witness for Christ as we wait 
for his return. In Jesus' name, with every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, if you prayed that prayer today, you accepted Christ as your Savior, whether it's the first time or maybe you're rededicating your life to him, I'm not going to call you out, but I do want to pray a blessing to you. Would you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor Joey, I prayed. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Amen. Thank you. Lord, God, I thank you for the hands that were raised today. God, we rejoice knowing that there's a party being thrown in heaven right now as those who are lost have been found. God, we just thank you for allowing us to be a part of what you're doing in their lives. God, I pray right now for your spirit to fall upon them, that you would fill them from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet. God, that you begin that transforming work. God, we break off all the guilt and shame and condemnation, every shackle the enemy's put on them their whole life, every bit of every painful memory from past mistakes. And God, we just speak new life right now in Jesus' name, that they be filled with the joy of the Lord. God, that all the heaviness would go and you'd place upon them a garment of praise. And God, we just rejoice at the way you're working and moving here among us. Now, God, as we go into a time of response and Tony leads us in song, we pray, God, that you would move and speak, that you would draw those that need to come, that you would heal, that you would restore, that you would prophesy, God, that you would release your breakthrough power that we know only you can do. In Jesus' name. at Vertical Life Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.